from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa Beck from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 19th. Today, the military-grade spyware secretly targeting journalists, human rights workers, and heads of state. Plus, a trip to space that's long overdue. The Post has been working with other news organizations around the world to investigate the use of spyware that's made by a company called NSO Group. It's based in Israel. And they've been controversial for quite some time. And what we were able to review as part of this project was a list that contains some phone numbers that NSO clients had used to select individuals for surveillance. Craig Timberg is a tech reporter for The Post. You know, one of the most interesting findings is we found quite a few heads of state on the list. When you say heads of state, you mean like... Real heads of state, like prime ministers, presidents. Presidents, prime ministers. This investigation was led by a French journalism nonprofit called Forbidden Stories. The Post worked with them, Amnesty International, and news organizations from around the world to try to figure out exactly who the governments using the spyware had selected for surveillance. We've been able to verify more than a thousand individual phone numbers. That doesn't mean that we were able to do forensics on those because that's not the case. But we were able to put identities, you know, names with numbers in, in more than a thousand cases. And we found hundreds of, you know, collectively journalists, politicians, human rights workers, diplomats, you name it. And we also have collectively been seeking as many smartphones as we can get our hands on to to do forensic examinations. This this is technically incredibly tricky stuff, but we've had quite a bit of success of finding forensic traces in devices themselves, which makes us feel confident about our conclusions in this project. So when you talk about spyware, like what are we talking about? What is this and what does it do theoretically? NSO makes a kind of spyware called Pegasus, and it's remarkably powerful stuff. Um, If it gets into your smartphone, it can get all of your contacts, all of your communications, all of your social media Mm. posts, get all of your passwords. It can figure out where you are. It can figure out where you've been. It can look at your call logs. They can use it to establish your relationships with other people. So essentially anything you can do on your smartphone sophisticated, government-grade spyware can do the same. The forensic examinations done by Amnesty International looked for evidence of processes that over time uh, they and other researchers have found in phones that are affected by Pegasus. So they go into the logs, they look for suspicious crashes, they look for unusual behavior, and they look for these processes that indicate that, that Pegasus was on your device, infected your device, or at least there was an attempt to infect your device by Pegasus. The other thing they look at are SMSs. So an an SMS may link to a website that's controlled by Pegasus or some other kind of malware company. And so that can also offer indication that your device has at least been targeted. So how does this actually work? Like if I were theoretically being spied on through this spyware, what would be happening to my phone? What would I see? You might see nothing. You know, the sort of 
somewhat familiar way this happens is, you know, you get a text that's weird and has some weird link and you click on the link and you download malware and your phone is taken over. And that that does happen. It still happens today. But the very best, most expensive spyware these days uh, uses what's called a zero-click attack. Someone sends a message through SMS or some other kind of path. iMessage is one of them. And these things are engineered to not show a preview on your screen. They don't make a noise. They just go into your phone and they start tearing down the defenses and Hmm. taking it over. You may not see anything. You may not hear anything. You don't need to touch anything. And, you know, your smartphone's been turned against you. That is so scary. Wait, so so this spyware, who is it being used by and who is it being used against? And, And how commonly is it being used? NSO tells us that they have 60 clients in 40 countries. And these are law enforcement agencies, uh, they're intelligence agencies, and they're you know, parts of militaries in these countries. And the purported use is to surveil criminals and terrorists. Mm. They talk about pedophiles and human traffickers and drug cartels and things like that. What we've found, and we're not the first you know, group of news organizations to find evidence of this, is that there's at least in some cases, abuse of that basic standard, that in addition Mm. to criminals and terrorists, there also are a very large number of, frankly, really interesting people, human rights workers, business executives, journalists. So our conclusion is that whatever the intentions are of the maker of this spyware, that when it's actually being operationalized in individual countries, that some people are just simply breaking the rules and that as a consequence, some victims are having some very personal details of their lives being sucked up by this. And is that legal? It it depends on where you are. You know, it certainly is legal for a government to look for pedophiles and terrorists and such. There tends to be a pretty limited set of legal rules around this kind of technology because the laws were drawn up back in the days when the police would put, you know, alligator clips on telephone wires and listen into calls. So the era hmm. of everyone living their entire lives on smartphones is still quite new. The legal infrastructure around the world hasn't caught up. The court systems haven't caught up. There's just not a lot of meaningful, you know, jurisprudence or meaningful protections at this point, really in, in most countries in the world. So I think in plenty of countries, what they're doing may well be illegal. But when it's being done by their own governments, it's, it fairly quickly ends up in a, in a gray area that's that's hard to work your way through. So you mentioned that there are instances where people are getting their personal information and, and private communications essentially sucked up by the spyware and shared with the people who paid for this spyware. Like, what are examples of that happening? Who, who are the victims here? So for this project, we've had a list of phone numbers, but we also have done forensic examinations of individual devices to see if there's you know, evidence of these spyware attacks and whether they were successful. Jamal Khashoggi is a former Washington Post columnist who was gruesomely murdered while in the Saudi consulate in Turkey back in 2018. And both his wife was targeted And his fiancé's iPhone was infected by Pegasus. Jamal, he was always believed we are watched. That is Khashoggi's wife, Hanan El-Atar. 
In a statement, NSO said that their technology was not associated in any way with Khashoggi's murder. They said they previously investigated this claim immediately after the murder, and they found no validity to it. The Post's forensic examination showed that Khashoggi's wife's phone had been subject to attempted infection by NSO spyware. She spoke to the Post about how she felt when she was told that she was targeted. I I think Jamal was right when he said this guy is is not, it's it's crazy guys. And he told me, Hanan, they did manage to put Ahmad Mansour, it's an Emirati guy in jail now in Abu Dhabi. Um, to put him in jail and to uh, observe him through his mobile, even when he was mobile off this Jamal information. Of course, I feel very bad. I feel not comfortable because there is a lot of people from different country, journalists and uh, politicians as well, used to speak, diplomat, used to speak to me. I'm wondering how much this Emirati guy got. So for the people that you know were targeted by this spyware, like, what, what was taken from them? Do you know details about what was recorded or what the spyware was able to get? We don't actually know what happened once the infections took hold. We just don't know what was taken. Uh, we know the kinds of things that can be taken. We know the kinds of actions they can take. They can turn on a, your microphone and your camera. But we don't actually know in the phones we examined what, what happened once, the, once this all began. Do, do you know who they were surveilled by? When it comes to determining who is doing the surveilling, it's it's awfully tricky. We don't have, you know, when we get into these devices, it's not like we see little flags <laughs> that tell you, you know, the, the nationality of the attackers. What we do know is we see phone numbers with country codes. So we have we have a lot of visibility into victims and nationalities of victims. But when it comes to who's operating the systems, we we have evidence, but we probably don't have conclusive evidence in every case. This company that makes the spyware, NSO, I mean, what do they have to say about the fact that it appears this is being used not entirely in legitimate or legal circumstances? In the days before the stories were published, we heard a lot from NSO and also from their lawyers in which they disputed virtually every fact we were going to assert in our stories. And accused us of making baseless and exaggerated allegations. Uh, Since we've published, uh, the tone has changed just a little bit. Um, They continue to say that we've gotten lots of things wrong and that we don't understand all sorts of issues. But Shalaf Julio, who's the chief executive of NSO, called me on my cell phone and, you know, expressed some concern about some of the things he had read in our stories and the stories of our partners. He didn't say, oh, you guys are right. But he did say, I would be very concerned, you know, if journalists were being surveilled, you know, we trust our clients to use this responsibly. We're going to investigate and we will terminate contracts if we need to. So I thought that was a, it's not, I wouldn't think of it as an admission, but we clearly, you know, have their attention and they say that they're going to look into all of these issues we've been raising. Have you all seen any evidence of people having their phones surveilled in the U.S.? NSO has been very consistent in saying that American cell phones with plus one country code can't be surveilled. And also that people from other countries who come to the United States also can't be surveilled using Pegasus. The one wrinkle in this, though, is that people who live and work overseas, even if they're U.S. citizens, oftentimes will get a local phone number. When I was a foreign correspondent in South Africa, I had a plus two seven South African phone number. And there's 
no way technically for NSO or anyone else to know that I'm a U.S. citizen using a South African phone number. So Americans, when they travel, are indeed, by all indications, subject to this, at least the possibility of being targeted by Pegasus. Hmm. And the companies that that make smartphones, I'm thinking like Apple, Samsung, whoever, like, are they just cool with this? That the phones that they make, that they think are secure, turn out to not be secure when the spyware is used? Both Apple and Google have very substantial security teams, right? So Apple makes the iPhone and makes the software on the iPhone. Google makes the Android operating system, which basically runs every other smartphone in the world. And, you know, on some level, maybe there's nothing that they could do that would make their devices perfectly secure. Um, and that's certainly, you know, what we found, that their devices aren't perfectly secure. Their mm-hmm. answers to these questions tend to be, we're doing everything we can. We're trying to protect our customers. We're trying to um, prevent abusive kinds of surveillance. But, you know, when it's a nation state actor that's coming after our devices and the customer's devices, you know, we do everything we can, but we we, we can't be perfect. Um, it's hard for me to evaluate those kinds of claims because I'm not a security researcher. So I'm, I'm just a journalist. But one of the things that's a real dilemma here is, you know, the kinds of security that my mom needs is different than the kind of security that I need. We, we could have mm-hmm. the same device, but, you know, she's a you know, older lady who lives in the suburbs and, you know, mainly <laughs> communicates with her friends and family about, mm-hmm. you know, routine matters. I'm a journalist who occasionally talks to sensitive sources that maybe I don't want my government or some other government to know about. And 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 that would be especially true. You know, I used to be a correspondent in Africa and that was especially true there, right? So I'm maybe I'm in Zimbabwe and I'm talking to some opposition figure. I have all their phone numbers. They're emailing me documents, right? If the Zimbabwean government gets into my iPhone, like it's just a different situation than my mother faces. And so yeah. I think that's part of the dilemma. I actually think that Apple and Google both work really hard at this. And they work hard enough to really help my mom. (laughs) But the question is, do they work hard enough? Do they do enough things to help me and the people I Mm -hmm. cover? Or for that matter, you know, politicians and human rights workers, et cetera, all over the world. I think that's a much more difficult question for them to answer. Yeah. Have you found yourself looking at your phone, (laughs) sitting on your desk or your bedside table or whatever, and being like, is it, is it recording me right now? Um. You know, I've covered surveillance and privacy for a long time. I was part of the post team that covered the Snowden revelations. I've never been entirely comfortable with my with my smartphone and the access it has <laughs> to my life. Uh, you know, we all do things that we hope make ourselves to be safer, but I'm painfully aware, and all of the journalists on this project are painfully aware that we don't have perfect protection. And that that this exists in a realm that on some level is kind of extra legal, right? I mean, if like, uh, you know, I'm going to pick a country out of the air. This is not reflective of the project, right? But let's say the Australians wanted to get into my my smartphone. Like, who's to stop them, right? I mean, Hmm. you know, we're all connected by all of these wires. You know, malware goes everywhere. They can get to my phone in 15 different ways. There's only so much you can do. And it, but it does, look, I, I think for colleagues of ours in other countries in particular, surveillance in some cases is so extensive and intrusive that it really does keep them from news gathering successfully. It intrudes in their personal lives. It intrudes in the personal lives of their friends and families. And it's hard to 
it's hard to feel good about that. So for people who are hearing this and feeling, I don't know, understandably creeped out or concerned about their phones and whether their phone could be secretly recording them, I mean, do you think that they need to be worried? I think for the huge majority of your listeners, um, they shouldn't really spend a lot of time worrying that some government is breaking into their their phones. There are a lot of other bad things that can happen to you, you know, scammers and spammers and you name it, that uh, hackers that can cause trouble in your life that are much more likely to happen than this kind of thing. I, I guess what makes this story important, though, is that the kinds of people who sometimes end up on a government's target list, I'm not saying they're more important than you or, or your listeners, but, you know, people have particular roles in society that, that can be especially important, right? I mean, someone who stands up and fights on behalf of a minority group that's being oppressed or someone who reveals some, you know, misdeed by a government or someone who's running for president of a nation or is president's candidate's wife or driver or whomever, like there are a huge minority of of humans in the world with smartphones, but their impact on the course of events in our societies can be disproportionate. And so that means that, you know, in a way their security is, is our security. If, if journalists can't do their jobs, if politicians can't do their jobs, if human rights workers can't do their jobs, ultimately our, you know, our democracies you know, end up paying a price for that. Craig Timberg is a tech reporter for The Post. He reported this story along with a number of other Post colleagues, joining forces with the journalism nonprofit Forbidden Stories, Amnesty International, and 15 other news organizations. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing about an 82-year-old woman who will finally take a trip to space after a 60-year delay. At the height of the space race, there was the original Mercury 7, which was an all-male team of astronauts that was NASA's first group of astronauts in space. Taylor Telford is a business reporter for The Post. Around the time that these astronauts were being tested and prepared for space, the doctor who worked with them to prepare them, Randy Lovelace, started working on the theory that women could also go to space. These female pilots that were selected by Randy Lovelace were subjected to the same kind of rigorous mental and physical probing that the male astronauts were, especially because it was so early in the space race, there was so little known about the effects of being in space on the human body. 
Mary Wallace Funk, or Wally Funk, as she has insisted on being known her whole life, was the youngest member of the Mercury 13. She was in her early 20s when she was among the group of women that were being privately tested and trained for a space mission in the early 1960s. She was very physically fit. Uh, One of her favorite stories to tell is that she endured a seemingly painless 10 and a half hours in an isolation tank. They were testing us to our extremes, to how much can we take of 10 degree water being injected into our ears and how fast is our eye going to stare at a particular object. NASA interviewed Funk in 1999 for an oral history project. Or what would I do in a tank of water that was so, and the humidity of the room that was so perfectly controlled to my temperature that I couldn't feel the water on my hands or my face because there was no hearing, smelling, all your senses were taken away from you. And you were to stay in there as long as possible, and I broke the record of 10 hours and 35 minutes. That must have been a very interesting experience. Well, you know, it was, it was so easy for me. And the doctor testing her actually ended the session because he was worried she might not be okay in there, not because she asked to come out. I took a lot of pain uh, that was associated with some of the tests that we took. I took it in stride. It was going to get me one step closer into space, and this is where I wanted to go. The program was canceled because NASA basically decided that it wasn't interested in sending women to space at that time. And actually, after John Glenn himself got back from space, he dismissed the idea of women going to space in a hearing uh, with Congress. So do we have a little bit of information here on how well do women do things? How well did they come across on the Mayflower? Terrific. How well did they go across the prairies and settle the West in their covered wagons? Great. Why can't we fly and go into space? For the men today that think that we can't as women do things, sorry folks, we could have done it if they would just let us. A dog did it, a monkey did it, man did it, woman can do it. And so it took another almost 20 years before a woman first went into orbit. And Wally Funk applied to NASA four times and received four rejections after NASA did open up its programs to women in 1976. And at the time she was told it was because they were only taking candidates with engineering degrees. But even despite the fact that she didn't get to go to space, she's a pioneer of aviation. She was the first female Federal Aviation Administration inspector and also the first female National Transportation Safety Board air safety investigator. She has taught more than 3,000 people to fly by her own estimation and has logged more than 19,600 hours of flight time. And now, Wally Funk is about to become the oldest person to go to space, beating out John Glenn, who last went when he was 77. Funk is scheduled to go to space on Tuesday on the New Shepard rocket, the first crewed spaceflight for Blue Origin, the company owned by Jeff Bezos. Bezos is the founder of Amazon and also the owner of the Washington Post, and he will be on that Blue Origin flight, along with his brother, as well as an 18-year-old from the Netherlands. 
But Bezos has said that given Wally Funk's long history in American aviation, she will be the guest of honor. I think it's clear from the title of honored guest that he's given Wally is that he thinks that she deserves a part in that story, too. And I think that when you see the video of her finding out that she's going to go, it's clear that regardless of whether or not this is a shrewd PR move for Bezos, this is also the culmination of a lifetime of training and hoping and waiting and dreaming for Wally Funk. You're in zero gravity for four minutes. You come back down. We land gently on the desert surface. We open the hatch and you step outside. What's the first thing you say? I will say, honey, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'll give you a <laughs> Taylor Telford is a business reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and Rena Flores. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.